Welcome to ASGE Endo Hangout with GI Fellows, Breaking the Glass Ceiling. We have attendees joining us from all over the world tonight, and the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy greatly appreciates your participation. My name is Ali Bergara, and I will be the facilitator for this presentation. Before we get started, there are a few housekeeping items. We want this presentation to be interactive, so you are encouraged to submit your questions at any time online by using the question box in the GoToWebinar panel on the right-hand side of your screen. If you do not see the GoToWebinar panel, please click the white arrow in the orange box located on the right-hand side of your screen. Please note that this presentation is being recorded and will be posted in the Fellows Corner section on GI Leap, HGE's online learning management platform within a week. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our two moderators, Dr. Lauren Feld and Dr. Lauren Rabinowitz, who will help facilitate the incoming questions. I will now hand the presentation over to them. Thank you to ASG for hosting this webinar, to our panelists for their dedication to fellow education, and to all of you for joining. I am a second year fellow at the University of Washington, and I'm pleased to be co-moderating with Lauren Rabinowitz, who I first met over a shared research project around our interest in gender equity and gastroenterology. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Lauren Rabinowitz. I'm a third year fellow at Mount Sinai in New York City, and a co-founder of the Mount Sinai Women in Gastroenterology Research Group. I'm thrilled to be uh, co-moderating with Lauren tonight and also to be helping to facilitate passing questions along to our wonderful panelists. One of our panelists tonight, Dr. Colleen Schmidt, is president of the multi-specialty Galen Medical Group in Chattanooga, Tennessee. She is past president of ASGE, where she developed the ASGE Leadership Education and Development LEAD program for women. She is currently the vice president for the GI Quality Improvement Consortium, GI Quick Registry, a collaboration between ASGE and ACG. Dr. Ashley Foe is a professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. She is an advanced therapeutic endoscopist and is on the faculty at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center and serves as the Director of Endoscopy at the Cleveland VAMC. She is a counselor on the ASGE Governing Board. Dr. Jennifer Marenke is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of Endoscopy at Penn State Hershey Medical Center, where her practice focuses on interventional endoscopy. Her main clinical interests are pancreatic obiliary and luminal malignancies, and her research has included work on pancreatic cyst ablation, endoscopy education, and endoscopic suturing. She is currently on the ASGE Educational Curriculum Council and director of the LEAD program for 2021. Dr. Brooke Glessing is an advanced endoscopist, director of endoscopy at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center, and medical director of the Digestive Health Institute at University Hospital's Ahuja Medical Center. She has been involved with ASGE on various committees and is a graduate of the ASGE Leadership Education and Development Program for Women. Dr. Amitab Chak is the current secretary-elect of ASGE. He is one of the advanced endoscopists at Case Western Reserve University. He served in various positions with ASGE and the GIE Journal. And currently, he is the Director of Advanced Technology and Innovation Center of Excellence at UH Cleveland Medical Center. Thanks, Lauren and Lauren. Um, once again, welcome to this next section of Endo Hangouts. 
this is specially designed by ASGE for fellows and it requires fellows to be involved both as moderators, uh, as Lauren and Lauren will help us. Uh, but for those of you who are attending, we welcome your questions for this panelist uh, that we've designed, especially for this session. Uh, there's going to be a lot of discussion and hopefully uh, some uh, new ideas and new recognition will come out of it. So without further ado, I'm going to hand the controls over to Dr. Ashley Foe, uh, one of my colleagues and current ASG counselor. Ashley, take it away. Thanks, Amitabh. I want to welcome all of the fellows. I'm so glad you all could join us tonight. I think you're really going to enjoy this. We've really enjoyed putting it together. So we're going to start off with a, a fun, entertaining, although somewhat depressing video <laughs> produced, directed, acted in by our own Brooke Blessing who, um, you know, I think you'll find this very entertaining and we'll start with questions after. Morning, morning. Hey, Dr. Blessing. What are you doing to today? Are you going to be able to work with you? I think so. I don't I usually wear. Heels are so high. Sandy, I'm one of the nurses here at Ahuja and endoscopy. I understand you are here to see Dr. Blessing today. You are going to just love her. She smells so pretty and she's so beautiful. Um, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to... Uh uh, hey, Dr. Katz. Hi, Dr. Shapiro. Hi, Brooke. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm Dr. Glessing. I'll be doing the procedure today. Okay. Um, it's nice to meet you. You're coming to me from Dr. O'Connor, is that correct? Yes. Okay. So I just wanted to go over this procedure and talk about, you know, what we're doing, why we're doing it, what the risks are, and then if you have any questions at the end, you can certainly ask me anything that you have before we, before we proceed, okay? Okay. Okay. Do you have any other questions for me before we get going? Well, no, I, I see the doctor just walked in, so maybe I'll ask him some questions. So, you Hello, are... Mr. Smith. My name is Dr. Motib. I'm the uh, GI fellow. I'm going to be actually joining Dr. Glessing. She's the attending who's going to do the procedure for you today. I'm only like a trainee and a fellow, but she is the actual attending doing oh, the procedure. You're the doctor? So, yeah, I'm actually Dr. Glessing. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't understand that. You're, you just seem too young and too pretty and... I didn't think you were the doctor. I thought you were the nurse. Um, have you done many of these before? You just look so young. You feel confident, and your colleagues are feel you're confident. Well, we're gonna get going in just a few minutes, okay? Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right, Mr. Smith. My name is Ma'am, the nurse with Vienna. We went to the room. Um, I'm sure you're gonna love Dr. Blessing. She's so nice. She's always smiling, very bubbly. We all love her here. She's so pretty too. But I mean, she's kind of young. She's a woman. I mean, I can trust her to get this done. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, I would. Okay. All right, let's get you in. 
guys, so that's it for the EGD. Let's go ahead and get set up for the colonoscopy. Uh, hey, Brooke, do you want another 50 and 2? Um, yeah. Are the vitals okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Let's go ahead and give another another round of meds. Okay. Uh, Brooke, would you like to set up for the colonoscopy while I go take this away? Uh, sure, sure. Sure, I can do that. Hey, Brooke. Thanks for letting me join your procedures today. Oh, hey, Sam. How's it going? Good. You look so cute today. Have you lost uh, weight? Oh, um, yeah, thank you. So, so what's going on with the company? I'm not sure. Have you checked out our new device, the polyp resection device? What do you think? You know, I'm going to be using it um, next week, I think. Okay. Let me get you some videos from Dr. Raja and King Planet. He does it really well. Maybe you'll learn something from those. So, Dr. Glessing, thank you so much for um, making and sharing this fabulous video. Um, one of the things that comes up in multiple of the contexts um, that are represented in the video itself um, is sort of that like difficulty setting boundaries um, when somebody either assumes that you're, you know, not not a, not the physician, or that even if they recognize you are the physician, that you can't possibly be the attending. Um, we were wondering, could you just sort of share your go-to um, methods of setting boundaries without being perceived as hostile or difficult or, you know, somebody who can't take a joke? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, you know, what's interesting is that when I was making this video, it was obviously, you know, scenarios that were based on true events. But even during the making of this video, I found myself at times completely at loss for how to respond to these scenarios that I had already made up. And so I would actually love to see, you know, hear what everyone else has as strategies for how to, you know, manage these types of situations and the, you know, the correct response. But I will say it really does vary for me on a day-to-day -day basis, depending on um, really my mood and what else is going on. Um, and, and I'm sad to say that I wish I had a better strategy um, consistently, but, um, and I definitely am able to, I'm, I mean, vendors, so vendors, I am super easy. It's very easy for me to immediately tell them that, you know, my name is Dr. Glessing, that I think I have earned the right um, to be called Dr. Glessing. I um, also um, am very quick to tell them if I don't feel like, you know, we are being respectful to each other, that, you know, they, they no longer need to to come and join me for procedure. So that's pretty easy. Um, with my nursing staff and um, my techs and even the fellows, I think one of the things that is so important and one of the things that I'm so grateful for is that I work at a place where I have, um, that people are very aware of this, I would say. And so in order to, I think kind of engaging um, the entire organization and the culture of your group um, to really support the idea of gender equality, I think is really important. And so I oftentimes um, will kind of even tell my staff, I'm like, hey, I, I totally am okay with you calling me Brooke um, when we're alone or you know, not in front of patients, but it's very important when we're in front of patients for you to address me as Dr. Glessing. Um, and you know, I think even just awareness is important. So I will say after I made this video with my staff, 
they have all been very aware of, you know, but you are bubbly and you are smile, you do smile and you are pretty. I'm like, thank you very much. That's very nice. But that has nothing to do with my abilities as a doctor and my qualifications and in front of patients, especially, you know, you know, either say nothing <laughs> or something, you know, to the to to really speak to my qualifications as a physician. And I think that that helps then set the tone for the patients, right? If you if the patients see that the staff around you are respecting you and treating you as an equal, I think that that then sets a tone for um, for the patients. I I will say that with patients, that is my my weakness. So um, you know, with older patients, are really cute. Sometimes I just kind of let it go. Um, you know, if they're a little bit more hostile, then I will be. I will kind of get into my deeper voice and a little bit less smiley persona and you know my you know my stance of being you know stronger to try to make myself seem a little bit more I don't know I don't know panelists do you have any <laughs> that's that's kind of what I've been trying to do for, for for boundaries but I will say patients are the hardest because I want I don't want to alienate them and I do want them to respect me but I also don't want to and the thing that I find myself getting into as far as traps is sometimes you know Oh, you look so young. I'm older than I look. I age really well. Um, there was a cartoon that I, I think I've actually even said this. Oh, my hands are really small. I don't shake like an old man. I mean, there's so many things that I say, and I hate that I do that sometimes because I'm trying to justify me being a female, and that's that has absolutely, I think, the wrong approach. Um, and so I think trying to really focus. Sorry to interrupt. So, Colleen, how do you deal with patients when when they don't recognize you as a physician or, or treat you differently or, or don't even want a woman, what, what, what would you do then or ask you? Thank you, uh, Brooke. That, the answers were really thoughtful and I think very honest and we share those experiences. I think all of us do. I'm from the South um, and uh, in the South, we are taught to be friendly, but happily also uh, to be very respectful. Unfortunately, I took that with me when I trained in Boston and uh, called my patients what we often call each other in the South, which is sweetie. And when I was an intern, my third year resident came down on me so hard. She said, you never call a patient sweetie. You always address them respectfully. Mr. Smith, Ms. Jones. And that stayed with me for the rest of my career. And um, I think it's, for me, a slippery slope um, to go down the path then of, of calling a patient by their first name. And in return, they call me Dr. Schmidt. There is the occasional patient. And um, like I, I think Brooke implied, I think sometimes it is, uh, um, I'm, I'm in charge, not you, Dr. Schmidt, Colleen or being passive aggressive, often I think they are just trying to be friendly and warm, but I refer to them by their last name and like, um, like Brooke, slow the tempo of the conversation down in a very intentional, serious way to ensure that we are connected at the professional level. I'm here to take care of you as a physician, use the white space, and discuss their symptoms, and we and I just ask them a question about why they're there. 
there, there's a lot of material in that video that you know you could spend each thing talking about. But how how do you, Ashley or Jennifer, how how do you deal with, I mean, fellows going by who call the male physicians by doctor and and don't call you? I mean, fellows are different from because there are trainees. Do you let that slide or do you? Well, I, I've noticed now that I am older that they all call me by my last name. <laughs> I wonder, you know, when I was a fellow, we called all the attendings by their first name. So something has changed. But um, I don't really tend to have that problem. I think when you're a junior, you know, I know Brooke started with us and, um, well, you weren't, you weren't um, a fellow. So I was a fellow. So it's harder when you be, you're a fellow and you move on to an attending and the fellows knew you as a fellow. So maybe there was a little bit of people calling me Ashley. And I think in my first couple of years that happened and it kind of a little bit bugged me and then they stopped doing it. And then it kind of made me feel older because they weren't doing it. So, you know, it goes in waves a little, but I don't really have issues with the fellows. I, I would say the, the video really represented well that it can be nurses in front of patients, reps and, um, um, and patients. And, you know, I sort of echo what Colleen and Brooke said, it sort of depends upon the patient and the day and, um, you know, what's been going on and sort of why they're doing it. There's, the, yeah, the patient wants to control the whole everything, but then there's the other ones who just can't pronounce my last name or they, you know, they see my badge. And so I, I, I try to let that go more so than other scenarios. I agree. Patients. Jen? Lauren, uh, Jennifer? Yeah, I you... have found um, that modeling the behavior that I would like from others has been somewhat effective. Um, I, For example, I always refer to the fellows by their title. So, you know, Dr. Damas or, you know, uh, Dr. Syed, especially the women. Um, when, I, when, when we're working um, and I'm speaking with the nurses, I always refer to the fellows, at, you know, by their title. Um, and then also when I started um, as a director of endoscopy, there was a, a, um, an anesthesiologist counterpart and everyone referred to her uniformly. Everyone referred, referred to her by her first name to the point that I didn't, it took me a while to even realize that she was an anesthesiologist. And so um, this is kind of years in the making. I have always referred to her when we're in meetings, most of the time she's not even there. I always refer to her by her title. Um, and I think that that has helped because the leadership team um, in endoscopy refers to me as Dr. Maranke. And then that sort of trickles down to, to, to the nurses and then their interactions with patients is, has a little bit of a different tone. And so I think that it takes time, but that has been effective for me. I agree with everyone else in that the patients are the hardest to to correct um and the only opening that i see is sometimes they'll, they'll like call me jen sometimes even people will call me jenny and they'll say like it's okay that i call you that right and it's like well at work people call me dr Moranke, but when we're out of work you can call me jen you know and so that has also you know and i do it with a smile right so i'm friendly try to be warm but when you don't have that opening, I just let it slide because invariably most of the people who are there who are there to see me are having something scary, something potentially bad 
doom going on. And if they need to have a little bit of control of the situation, I'm kind of okay with that. I don't know Lauren, if that Lauren moves the ball forward or not, but. Well, I, I really appreciated what you said about leading by example and sort of making sure that you're addressing the fellows um, by their by their professional title. Um, we had an, a, a one attending at our institution who would consistently address fellows by their first name, which is fine for the male fellows, because if you tell a patient, this is Brian, he'll be doing your scope today, then they say, great. And if you say, this is Lauren, she'll be doing your scope today. And they're like, <laughs> you know, are you qualified? Is this okay? Um, and so um, one, one of the female fellows, uh, one of my colleagues pointed it out, and since he's completely rectified the behavior, so I think it really does show that sort of like standing up for yourself can sort of help, you know, bring positive change for other people that you're, that you're um, working with. Um, I did want to mention that for all of the attendees, um, there are many of you, I'm thrilled that you've all joined us. You can feel free to put questions in the chat box and we'll, um, Lauren and I will pass those along to our panel. Um, so feel free to type in questions that you want to ask specifically. Um, but while we're um, waiting for, for attendee questions, um, I'll direct it back to the panel to say, you know, we've talked about sort of um, ally type behavior and I'm wondering, you know, in the video there is the fellow who is sort of addressed more um, as the as the physician and so what are some behaviors that you've witnessed from sort of ally people helping to um, you know step up or address bias that they witness um, so maybe um, Dr. Fo if you could talk about sort of how you've seen that been you know good allies be involved well um, you know I don't really, I would say the major issues that I have are patients and, and, um, and sometimes other colleagues, but by and large, I have to say, you know, we do have a lot of women in our institution who are faculty and, you know, I, I do see the fellows introducing themselves to the men by their first name and they don't wear a white coat and, and the patients don't bet an eye and it blows my mind. I just, cause I always put my white coat on and I, you know, so I, I might not be the best person to answer that. I, you know, I, I feel generally pretty lucky. I feel though this stuff happens all the time. And I think I can, I mean, I can relate to every single one of those. I don't know that I've ever had a nurse saying, you know, you'll love Dr. Foe, she's so pretty, but Brooke is better looking than I am, but, um, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe I missed some of that, but in general, I feel, you know, I feel pretty lucky that I've been able to. And I think I would just say, you know, what Colleen had said before, which is the way you carry yourself and, you know, you, you, you're confident, you're show that you're in control. And I think patients respond to that. And I think other people respond to that. So I feel like, it's sort of a little bit, you know, my mother was a physician and so I sort of learned from her and she's kind of a sort of a badass, I would say, in general. She, you know, liked to control the OR even though she was the anesthesiologist sort of thing. And so I think I got that from her. And so I think it is really important the way you carry yourself and you exude confidence, even if you're not confident, right? And um, I, I think that I've generally been pretty lucky and again also I have a group of men who I work with who are the most respectful 
never cross boundaries. Don't, you know, call me by my, you know, my title around other people. And so I just think I've been lucky in that way. So maybe I'll pass the mic to someone else. Well, I'm getting, to, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Lauren. Lauren, go um, ahead. I was just going to say, sort of as a follow-up to that, one of the questions coming into the chat is, um, it seems like actually several of our um, fellow participants tonight um, feel that perhaps nurses treat them differently, um, perhaps less respectfully in the endoscopy suite, and actually can, can cause patient safety issues. Um, and, you know, is that something that you've experienced now that you're sort of more senior? Um, maybe Dr. Schmidt, you can you can take this question. Um, and do you have any recommendations as a young female trainee um, who wants very much to be incredibly respectful of nursing colleagues? Um, how do you sort of navigate that relationship? I think that this is a particularly easy place. Um, for us to be confused. We, um, like surgeons, are in procedures working in very intimate settings. Really, um, that is, I think the intensity of it is sometimes heightened by what we do. And we feel that bond with the staff that are in the room with us. We are, we are on mission and we're on mission together. But when the patient is asleep, um, we do have exchanges uh, that are meant, I think, to both increase the, that sense of camaraderie, but at the same time, um, there still need to be boundaries to that. And uh, just two things. One, um, I, I'm very careful that the conversation in that procedure stays at a professional level. We may talk about other things, um, maybe uh, the newest movie or our newest recipe, that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, their eyes are on the screen with me looking for polyps. And if the conversation goes sideways or they're distracted by something else, that's, that's kind of the call to arms. Let's get our attention back to what we're doing. And they know that, that I mean, let's get focused on the patient. And that allows um, everyone to understand again who's in charge of the team. So I don't mean to be um, controlling about it. It doesn't happen very often. But I do think you have to keep the conversation in those intimate procedures at a, at a professional, cordial level. I'm not trying to preach to anybody. Um, what we do is a lot of fun, and it, and it, it lends itself to, to team-based care. The other, um, the other area where I think it's a very important is sometimes we're all kind of moving into the patient at the same time. Uh, Brooke enjoyed that in her procedure. You've got fellows coming in, you've got staff coming in, or you may walk in where staff are preparing a patient. But the staff know uh, that when I enter into a conversation with the patient, everything else goes into the background. And that's the way it should be. The patient needs to be able to hear me. Uh, this needs to be a one-on-one -on -one conversation that we're having. We're talking about risky procedures. And literally, if there's too many people in the room, sometimes people will step out. And that conveys to the patient 
this is the person in charge. Let us step back and let you have that conversation with her. And at the same time, we still really enjoy working together because we all know that, that that's the intent. But I, I think that is a, what Jennifer pointed out, that is a learned behavior. It sometimes is a big culture change, but it's one over time that I think will serve your patients well um, and serves the discipline well and serves to actually help us develop a better team uh, and, and refocus. Can I just make a comment, um, you know, Colleen, on that theme? Um, theme. I think that has been the most challenging thing for me as director of endoscopy at the VA. I think as a woman, there are mostly women nurses. And so as you become friends with them, you know, because us women, we're just chattier than men are, right? We talk about like, I'll come home and I can get a roofer, an electrician, a, you know, I get recommendations from my nurses, right? So they feel like they're, you, you and they are on the same level until suddenly it's patient care and I have to be in charge and something's happening. And then you turn into the bitch, right? The B word, because you're trying to, you know, things have changed and I am in charge. Yes, I am, you know, I am gonna tell you, I'm gonna ask you to do something. And it's kind of, it is, I think it's very challenging. And I think women have a harder time because of that female thing where the women, you know, you talk about your kids at work or you talk about your dog that's had, you know, whatever. I think that at least I'm that way. I'm sort of, you know, you spend a lot of your time at work and you sort of end up sort of being friends with the nurses, but then it's, it's hard to, it's hard. That's a really hard balance. And I struggled with it in, you know, the 16 years now. So it's, it's really challenging. I think it'll be a challenge for all of us on this call from now to the end of our careers. But you know, there's some things you can even do physically. You're in the procedure, things are going on around you. Just think about when you settle yourself into your stance on both feet and kind of relook at the screen and say, okay, everybody eyes on the screen. It doesn't need to be um, harsh or uh, commanding even. Just let's, let's, let's refocus. But at the same time, I like to go out with some of my nurses after work to get nachos and that sort of thing, but that's different. That's letting your hair down. It's not the same in the procedure room or in front of the patients. And I think they're smart, they're smart women. I think they can get that. And if you have to, you can have a very explicit conversation with them. And I think they'll get that too. You know, I was gonna say, just to kind of echo what you guys were saying. Um, so I also struggle as director of endoscopy with this, but I do think that just being really assertive and talking to people as you see the behavior happening, um, you know, pulling the, pulling people aside as appropriate, you know, not talking to them in front of the, an entire group or entire room. But um, I think, again, that's about just creating this culture um, in your workplace of respect. And so same with, to answer the question that Lauren had brought up a little bit ago about fellows feeling like they weren't being respected, I mean, it's really hard, I think, as a trainee to go to the staff, the staff that will say, I have been doing this longer than you have been born, right? You know, you get that a lot too. Like, I know more about GI than you will ever know. I mean, comments like that, I know were said to me when I was a fellow. And um, and so it's sometimes hard to advocate for yourself when you are, um, when you are a trainee. But I think if you have um, a mentor or some other um, ally, you know, as a staff that can also kind of just say, you know, we are all on the same team. We're all doing what's best for the patient care and we all have to be in this together. Um, we have to respect each other in front of the patient because really 
you know, the patient needs to feel confidence in their team. I think that that's really important. And I think um, addressing it as immediate to the issue as you can, I think is really important. Um, and I super struggle with this boundaries in the room because <laughs> I, I'm super chatty and like, I feel like everyone probably thinks that they know my life. Like, um, and, and so I do think that I, I struggle with this a lot with Colleen and Ashley were saying about, um, you know, I, I also like to go out for drinks before COVID and all that uh, with my team. And I also personally feel like in the long run, and I could be wrong about this because I am on the younger side, but I do feel like when um, I have been able to interact with my team outside of work, it actually makes for a stronger partnership at work um, because we kind of see each other also as human beings and people that have lives and um, and it's able to, and sometimes I will even say, okay, guys, like I'm talking to you with my director hat on, which I know sounds kind of stupid, but, or, you know, like we're in the room and I'm like, just like Colleen was saying, you guys, okay, now we really need to focus or, um, you know, all eyes on the screen or whatever. And I think that just being very vocal about it is also important. So that way it doesn't get pent up and all of a sudden it comes out as something more aggressive than it needs to be. So you're on the pretty and young side, right, Brooke? No, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I was so I was creating this video, and I would say I I totally agree with what Ashley said. We are very fortunate. We have a lot of women in leadership, um, and all of you know all of our immediate colleagues are so respectful. But there's this one surgeon that I absolutely love. Work with him all the time. Um, but to me, he is like a classic, like older white surgeon. And uh, when I was talking about what we were doing and this micro, you know, talk about microaggressions, he was totally like, well, that doesn't really happen, right? And then he was like, well, what's an example? So I said something about how, well, you know, like people say, you know, I can't be a doctor because I'm so pretty and, or young, I'm too young. He's like, but you are pretty and young. Like, what's wrong with saying that? I don't, I don't know what the problem is. I don't get it, you know? And I was like, oh, so, you know, it, it is around us. And I think a lot of the problem is that we don't recognize it. You know, it's, un, it's that's why it's called unconscious bias, because we just do it without recognizing what the implications are, what the, the meaning behind those statements are. So keep, keep those questions coming. Uh, Lyle, can you give Jennifer the control? And then she can launch into the questions. We'll, we'll save the last 20 to 30 minutes for more questions. Um, there's a lot of material in, in there, but we also want to give Jennifer a chance to go through some of her content and, and we'll see how far, uh, as you guys know, who've been to these Endo Hangouts, they don't always end, but we'll keep it going. Great, thanks Amitab. So I am um, segueing into um, a, a little bit of information about on-ramps, off-ramps, um, kind of foot on the gas, foot off the gas in terms of overall career. And um, I get a lot of my data from um, articles in the Harvard Business Review, and most of the data that we're going to be talking about tonight is from the business world, but I think that it does apply to the medical field as well, um, because we're highly educated, um, you know, advanced degrees, really qualified women. Uh, but large numbers are, of highly qualified women are leaving the workforce. There is a brain drain. And there's also um, a phenomenon in the sandwich generation where you have highly skilled, really experienced women between the ages of 40 to 55 who leave work to care for family members. Um, 
and nearly 60% of highly qualified women describe their careers as nonlinear. Interestingly, of um, MBA holders, one in three white women um, does not have uh, a full-time job compared to one in 20 white men. Um, so this is, there's definitely um, women leaving the workforce uh, in higher numbers than we'd expect. So about um, the, of the women who do leave, you know, full-time work, um, those who off-ramp do it for a short period of time on average, only 2.7 years. Um, and then 40% of them will go back at some point um, and find full-time jobs. A little less than a quarter of them will go back and, and work part-time. Um, less than 10% will become self-employed. And then there's 30% of off-rampers who don't return to the workforce. Now there is some data in terms of doctors uh, related to this. And of those who rejoin, 70% uh, cite enjoyment and satisfaction as the, as the main reason to return. Um, this data is interesting because it shows the top five reasons women leave the fast lane, the fast lane, um, and the top five reasons men leave. And family time is the is kind of the number one reason. Um, about a quarter of people want to earn a degree or, or um, explore other training. Um, less than 20% feel that work is not enjoyable or satisfying. Some move, about less than 20% move, and then 16% are changing careers. Um, Conversely, the top five reasons men leave, the main reason is to change careers. Um, similarly to women, they're earning a degree or developing other training. More men find work to not be enjoyable or satisfying. Um, and then they're not interested in the field anymore. And compared to 44% in women, family time only accounts for 12% of the reasons why men leave the fast lane. Um, this data is from a huge um, women in the workforce survey that's been conducted by McKinsey and Company in partnership with leanin.org. And this survey has been going on since 2015 and um, has included over six, 600 companies and about 250,000 respondents. Um, in 2020, they focused their um, uh, their efforts on how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting the workforce. But this slide was kind of interesting to me. So mothers are three times more likely to be responsible for most of the household labor. But more than 70% of fathers think that they're splitting it equally, um, whereas you know only 44% of mothers feel the same way. And so in, in, in the mothers here, they're doing for either most of the work or all of the work in over 50% of, of households, at least from mother's perspectives. Um, in terms of COVID-19, uh, mothers are more likely to consider scaling back, um, you know, reducing work hours, switching to a less demanding job, uh, potentially taking a leave of absence, um, moving from a full-time role to a part-time role, or even 7% are considering leaving the workforce altogether. Now, this um, time out or time away, this off-ramp comes at a penalty, right? So if you look at um, the salary of those who spend no time out, if they're out for less than a year, their earning power is decreased by 11%. But if they're out for three years or more, their earning power is decreased by over, over 37%, right? So these are huge issues that I think it's important for us all to be aware of when we're considering these, these changes and negotiating these things, even with our own partners about who's gonna do what or, or for how long. Um, 
I think having this information helps empower us to make good decisions for ourselves and our families. So ooh, let me go back here. What can be done? So in medicine, I think this is slow to evolve. The business world is way ahead of us, but make some more flexibility in the day-to-day -day work um, and find ways to make the work that we do more sustainable um, have flexibility in the career arc, right? So in, in the business world, we can unbundle projects and tasks, but could we also do that in medicine? Could we unbundle some of the work associated with um, providing care? Um, could we activate physicians as needed? Um, how do we eliminate the stigma of stepping down or going part-time or taking time off or stepping back? Um, how do we take steps to minimize gender bias? And, you know, we're going through some of that today. Um, and avoid burning bridges. So the connections that you make, the context that the context that you make, the relationships that you build, um, be careful not to burn those bridges because they may be your a, a way to re-enter the workforce. Uh, continue to nurture your ambition, and work actively with your own mentors to develop a, a, a path back. Um, so those are just a couple of um, tips and insights about women in the workforce. So, so can I take the prerogative uh, of before Colleen of asking the panel questions? Did, did any of you consider taking time off for family? Um, and, and a corollary to that question is when choosing either when you made your decision to choose GI, which is a procedural field and, and requires a fair amount of intensity. And, and even more, a uh, number of you who decided to choose interventional endoscopy. Was that a, a challenge or, or did you struggle with that uh, decision, um, either because of families or, or other things pulling you in different directions? How, how did you? choose that career or, or or how did you handle that what what things jennifer was talking about i'll start because i did it twice oh colleen. sorry sure no colleen go ahead i did it twice um when i was a so i've been married for 41 years uh when i was a, a third year resident we decided to have our first child and uh I wanted to go into GI. They had just started doing this very neat procedure called ERCP, and I wanted uh, to do it at Duke. So I went to my department chair, and who knows, this was my first negotiation. And I said, I would like to do GI, but I'd like to take a year off and job share with this other resident, and then go do a GI fellowship at Duke. And he supported me 100%. Never thought twice about it. I just that's what I wanted to do, and I explained my reason, and he got behind me um, and really paved the way for that to happen. The second uh, time out I took was uh, when I was on faculty and doing outcomes research, we decided to have our second child, and I really just didn't have enough patient contact, and we wanted to move closer to our family. So um, that's exactly what I did. I took another year out to to do that. Clint and I, my husband and I, um, looked at all of our options, including going back to Boston, moving to Chattanooga, and a lot of other places. Um, but it's a very crooked, circular 
path. Um, I think, as Jennifer pointed out, if it had been longer, I'm not sure the path back in would have been quite as easy. But I knew how long I wanted to take out and I knew what I wanted to do next. Maybe that helped. And I negotiated both of those and thought through them with, uh, with my partner. Can I ask a follow-up question of how you negotiated your way back into the workforce and what joining again was like? I, I never missed a beat. I think the interval years provided great fodder for stories that, you know, we share um, with our staff, um, uh, with our family, um, and hopefully in the future with my grandchildren. Um, I, I don't want folks to overthink it just think about what you want next and what you want to what you want to envision is your career not your next job and this is meant to be a bridge to that if your time out is just i can't do this anymore that's a different thought process but i think in both of these occasions were the first time was i know what i want to do can you help me get there and the second time was this is not what I thought it was going to be. I want to do something else. What is it? Here it is. Let's work in that direction. I hope that helps. Ashley, um, Brooke, Jennifer, did, Ashley, did you ever consider so, not? Um, you know, um, I, so again, I had a mother who was one of five women in her medical school class. And so she was my role model. And she would make comments like, why do women think they should be treated differently than men? Like she was very much old school. So she was a bit alarmed when I got pregnant my intern year. Um, she did not get excited like my friends did. She was like, ooh, interesting move. Um, and so I never really thought, cause my mom worked full time till she retired overnight call in the hospitals and came home and cooked us gourmet meals. And you know, so, uh, that was a little, you know, I, that's just been my role model. So I did think though about when my husband and I were both looking for jobs at the same time and he's a physician and he works at a hospital in Cleveland that's not flexible and, you know, you're there and you're there all the time and they, he works really, really hard. And so I think that you can think about like what job you're looking at. And I work at the VA mostly and you know, there are a lot of women there and the hours are very limited. And so we made it so that, you know, it would be one of us could be flexible. Now I do have to remember when I would get annoyed that I was always the one who had to deal with the kids if something happened because my husband couldn't, that remember that's why I kind of signed up for this job. So I didn't really think take time off of that. I'm thinking about it now. I'm thinking four days a week sounds really good. I think COVID has given me a new perspective when I was working, you know, like about 70%, I was like, okay, this is kind of reasonable. So uh, my kids are both, you know, in college and um, they certainly didn't like me getting home early. The one who was stuck at home with co when COVID hit was kind of annoyed that I was getting home early during COVID time. So, um, but uh, one thing to remember, and Colleen, you talked about a little bit, is your life is phases. So you'll have the before kids, you'll have the kids when they're little, then you'll have the kids when they go to college and you know you can change your career as you have more time to do things um, one follow-up question one of the, go ahead lauren and just a follow-up question that's coming through um so it sounds like 
Dr. Schmidt, what you were saying is that you had an idea of, of how you wanted to achieve what you wanted to achieve. And it also sounds like you had a program director or leadership that supported you in doing that. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about what to do if you brought sort of a, an idea like that forward and didn't get the support that you had gotten. Do you think your course would have been different or how might you have handled it in that case? Uh, I, honestly, I, I, I think I would have adapted. Um, I would have done it. I would have gone to a different GI fellowship. Um, I, I would be surprised. I would have been very surprised if I'd been told no. So surprised that um, I'm not sure I would have accepted that, really. Um, and I then I would have gone to to talk to other people and and kind of test that. Um, was it a reasonable thought process, uh, logical goal? I was asking, and I'm still working. It wasn't like I was going to take a complete year off, which is not an unreasonable request, by the way. Um, but I, I already had a plan, and uh, I was a bit surprised that he was so fully supportive of it. Um, but back, this was 1989. Don't, don't, don't date yourself. Yeah. So, well, so Brooke, and, Brooke and Jennifer, uh, one of the hardest things that, and this is also true for ASD, is as people go through their fellowship, especially women, ones who are interested in going into endoscopy or interventional endoscopy, more and more and more of them drop off as they go through their fellowships. Did, did Were you committed to interventional endoscopy? Did you ever think of not doing it or was it a challenge to go into intervention? So for me, um, interventional endoscopy is why I went into GI. I had a light bulb moment um, at a can, you know, as um, a medical student at a uh, rotating through a cancer center, and I saw my patient undergo like an EUS FNA ERCP, and it was I was going to be an oncologist. I saw that, and that was it for me. And that is still that's my favorite thing to do. Like that's my favorite thing to do. Um, and so for me, it was always interventional or bust. Um, and, you know, I think because I had that, like, you know, that was my true north. I, I knew it from very early on. It became, all those decisions became very easy for me. But I also had advantages um, that a lot of women don't have. I had um, a significant other that was uh, very, that is very supportive, um, that he doesn't require a lot of, um, a lot of maintenance, uh, you know, he's good, you know, when, when I'm gone, you know, or if I'm not, I'm coming, I'm coming home, I'm not, he's totally independent, right? He doesn't need Is me. this a dog or your spouse? I'm sorry. He was mobile, he would go where I wanted to go for fellowship. I mean, he had input. Um, and then, you know, the other advantage is, um, you know, and I recognize that this is a huge advantage for me, but he's a stay-at-home dad. And, you know, I came from a very traditional, I'm one of five kids, my mom stayed at home. And so I'm used to having a very, you know, somebody's at home, very stable environment. And I wanted that for my kids. And my husband, 
um, provides that for us because the truth is that if it were up to me, it would not be stable. It, would, it wouldn't be stable if everybody was counting on me. So, um, so yeah, so I actually went into GI because I fell in love with the liver and then it was pretty quickly during my general GI fellowship that I just absolutely fell in love with therapeutic endoscopy. And then from that point forward, it was just like Jen, it was, you know, that or bust. So, um, and, you know, and I also, my advantage maybe was that I was single and didn't have anything connecting me or tying me down to anything. And so I felt very fortunate when I was going through the fellowship process and going through even trying to find my first job. Um, I mean, Cleveland, why not? You know, I mean, it's just me. So, um, so once I, once I, I just, I think it's so important to like what you do. And I fell in love with therapeutic endoscopy. And that's from that point forward, I did that. But I just want to back up and I just want to say one thing because I had a really good training history. And so I don't want to, this to sound like I didn't, but I did have a mentor. I had many mentors, but one of the mentors that I had when I was a resident. Um, I was married at the time and I was thinking about family planning and um, I was I was advised strongly to not have kids at that time because it was not going to do well. I was the timing of it was not going to work for applying to GI fellowship. And um, I mean, and that was that was making so many assumptions like I wanted a baby and boom, I'd have one like, you know, at, at the time, though, like, you know, you think a lot. At the time, you think all these decisions are so important and they're going to change your entire career and your future. And we didn't talk about on-roads and off-ramps and all that stuff at the time. And um, and so I didn't pursue it. And I mean, now, like I'm divorced and I'm glad that I, I guess maybe that I don't know, but that really changed. That might have changed my life a lot. And I, you know, and now I don't think any of us would advise you know you have to live your life and you have to do what's important to you and so that's something that i wish you know i don't know i'm very happy with my life so who knows this is the life that i have but that was very pivotal at the time you know 15 years ago so in any case Helene, can you give us some sage words of advice so the um We were talking just a, a minute ago about what would I have done if if things had not worked out the way I thought they would, uh, and I think that that actually would probably be the next opportunity I would have had for negotiation, even though I didn't know it at the time. Uh, so uh, when Amitabh approached me about being part of the panel, uh, we thought about case presentation. So I have I have two. One is a fellow who is doing an advanced year and she wants to go into private practice. Uh, the second one, if we if we get to that and it's fine if we don't, uh, wants to have an academic career. But to take a, a big step back from this, um, I'll reiterate that I think as you embark on your career, you need to have some idea of what's important to you uh, and what you want your your life to look like, because at the end of it, you want it to be uh, a life that you enjoyed professionally and personally. So an exercise that we go through in some of the leadership programs is, is for you to look at all of the different value sets that surround you in the universe and really think about what's important to you. So what identifies you in terms of decision making? And for this um, woman, 
she identifies these freedom, autonomy, some might say, uh, making a difference, so making a difference in patients' lives, uh, her sense of well-being, and then personal development. And then you go through, uh, I would recommend an exercise of, as you look at a job, be it, <clears throat> be it in private practice or in academia, of really creating your own personal inventory and then a professional inventory. And what I mean by personal inventory is, is you and your partner sit down and you articulate, it may be very general, it doesn't have to be you know, down in the weeds, what your priorities are for, for what your life is gonna look like. And for this person, uh, this woman, she wanted to join a quality group, a group with a good reputation, someone she knew she could trust her patients with. She wants to start a family, doesn't know when or how, uh, but she knows she wants one, and she wants eventual financial independence. Now, her professional inventory is um, that she is well-trained. Uh, she believes she actually does have some specific talents. She is interested in participating in governance in the group, so will she um, uh, what kind of groups would allow that to happen? And her own personal um, work approach is one towards a, a team-based approach. She's not one that likes to be isolated or, um, or work alone. Her long-term goal is full partnership in a group. So she responds to an ad for a large group practice. And uh, I want to turn it back to Lauren and, and Lauren and see if there are any uh, questions that might come up from many of the attendees. Maybe some of you are looking at similar experiences. Um, and if there are any questions that come to mind. So, Dr. Schmidt, um, can you talk a little bit about um, like when you're negotiating and when you're thinking about all of these values? Um, is there something very fundamentally different about being a woman negotiating versus a man negotiating? Uh, there, are, there are books written uh, about how women uh, negotiate as compared to men, or rather how we might not negotiate. Um, there are some that I'll, I will recommend to you. I, I know that there are millions of self-help books um, but there are some that I think can really make a difference in, um, in any number of attributes that you need to bring to that, that kind of conversation. So this is going to be a good segue to maybe one of my other slides, but let's, let's just talk generally about negotiation and then specifically about women. We can derail this at any time, Lauren and Lauren. But one of the first things that you want to understand is that the only expectation uh, when you sit down, let's say it is about this kind of job, is that you are going to negotiate, not what you're gonna negotiate, but they are prepared for you to negotiate. The person on the other side of that Zoom interview or on the other side of the restaurant table knows that you're gonna negotiate. There are gonna be things that you just don't agree on in terms of, um, where you're gonna end up in, in your contract or your employment agreement. But long-term, and this goes for any negotiation, I think, whether it be with a payer or with a hospital or with your division chief or with this large group, is uh, the goals are, are mutual. 
everybody wants a win-win. They want you to succeed and you want to bring success to the group. Um, really, one of the fundamental reasons to negotiate is that so both sides of the table have clear expectations of the other party. And in the long run, um, you are leaving behind a relationship of some kind. And if you're moving forward, you're creating a partnership and a relationship. So you wanna cultivate the positive aspects uh, of that discussion. And by way of doing that, I mean, you always wanna end and start a conversation or an email or a letter with thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate the opportunity to review this. Um, make sure that in the end, you're negotiating with the person that can do the deal. And if you're not, if they're not that person, then you need to get follow-up in writing from the person that is. This goes for private practice or academia. You can imagine you're having this wonderful discussion and they're promising you the world and come to find out they didn't have the world to promise you, even though their intentions may have been good. When you receive an offer, doesn't matter if it's by email or verbal or over the telephone or by Zoom, thank the individual for the opportunity and um, want to take some time out to review that. If they press you, just thank them again and say you'd like to take some time to review the details because negotiation is often about the package. If you get obsessed with each detail, you're going to feel like you're losing part of the time. And in fact, what you're negotiating is the entire agreement. So take the time to understand what parts of that are important to you, where you're willing to give and take, what your priorities are. And then in the end, and again, this, this goes for everyone, negotiation has to be done with, um, with integrity. You want never to negotiate for the sake of negotiating, but really to, to have a conversation about what's important to you. And then document and summarize all conversations. So if they don't send it to you, just write a summary email soon afterwards. Thank you for our discussion yesterday. Here's my understanding of what we agreed upon. Now, with regard to women, um, there is um, there's a number of traps we can fall into, but rather than telling you the don'ts, let me tell you what I think are the do's. Think about your negotiation for this job as in the context of your entire career. Now, in private practice, the truism is you don't want to change. You want to find a private practice that you can be married to and stay married to for the rest of your career because it's all about building a referral base and relationships. Uh, my impression of academia is that it might be a little bit different. You, it, it might be necessary to move to another institution or even city in order to get that next promotion. But I'll, I'll leave that to the academicians to, um, to think and talk with you about. But you are talking about the trajectory of your life, not just about this next job. So there may be some trade-offs there that are gonna be a better fit for your life where it is. Let's say you do have a young child, you need Monday afternoons off to take your kid to karate, truth. Um, your husband is a musician, he has rehearsals on Thursday night, that's the deal breaker, you gotta be out of there by four o'clock to pick up the kids. Whatever that is, think about the entire um, situation of your life and your professional goals. Use every opportunity you can to ask questions. If you're in private practice, look at MGMA uh, standards for payments. Talk to other people in the town, call the medical society, ask the staff, uh, what are these folks like? You know, the nurses know better than anybody what someone is really like in a professional setting. Understand what your real needs are as you look through that list and the offer that's been made to you. Prioritize though, and then think about where you could make some, uh, some gifts back in, in trade-offs. One of our assets is uh, that we do 
tend uh, to use uh, our radar. We see what's going on in the room. Uh, we're not laser focused on a certain sentence and that can stand our benefit. We understand those, those cues that are going on around us and we tend to negotiate communally. We do a better job of negotiating for our kids, for our spouse or for our dogs than we do for ourselves. That can be used to your advantage as well. Uh, so that compassionate curiosity can be turned uh, to your advantage. Figure out what your ask is, practice it. Don't just practice it, but think about even if it's just with your partner or your best friend or your colleague, what every potential objection could be and think about what your response is gonna be to that. Practice making the ask. Feel like you can stop and let the other person talk. Use the white space of the conversation and um, leave the extra information and emotion and words out. Let them jump in to fill in the, the silence. That can be um, very telling and um, really be very informative to you. What you're negotiating, the most important thing I think you have is your time, the time of your life. It's not anything you'll ever get back. Uh, for folks in academia, just like folks in private practice, most of the time that's measured in 10, 10 half days a week. And uh, if your expectations are to be providing a certain amount of patient care, there's gonna be some bleed over into the afternoon, then the afternoon will bleed over into the evening. Um, if you use an electronic health record, you know the temptation is just to take that home. Set boundaries for yourself and understand what it is to finish your day. Um, I, I need to practice more of what I preach for that. But time is the most important thing that you'll ever negotiate. Uh, maybe I can stop there, um, Lauren and Lauren. And that's, that's great. Lauren, Lauren, any questions coming up or can we? Yeah, we, have a, we, get to the, yeah, we have a good question that asked um, about how to recommend refining a specific skill set that sort of will set someone apart. So we have a fellow who's saying that they're not necessarily interested in doing a fellowship after general GI, um, but they are a bit worried about sort of the job market and if and how to sort of um, present themselves as a, as a desirable candidate um, in that negotiation. Um, does anyone have any recommendations on that? Amitabh, you're good with this if you want to speak, unless you want um, You know, we've had a number of women who have done general GI, not done fellowship, and sort of felt it out a little bit when they were at, at their job, what, what the needs are. So one of our faculty went into, um, sort of takes care of cystic fibrosis patients and sort of differentiated that way. Another one spent two months learning esophageal motility and pH, and now she sort of runs the esophageal, you know, clinic and things um, at the VA. Now she's at the university as well. So you can potentially, if you know where you want to be, Sort of try to figure out what they might want and you know you can oftentimes especially if they really want that they'll send you to do you know a couple months of training somewhere so you could certainly maybe sometimes because during fellowship it's you know it's a quick three years you may not be able to figure it out before you go somewhere i think it's not unreasonable to you know sort of take a little time to figure that out but that's just one opinion i'm curious to hear 
I mean, I would, I would say that if you don't particularly have a super interest in a niche, I would not say that you do because you know that where you're interviewing really needs someone that is, you know, into motility or into nutrition or really interested in IBS. Like I would say, be really true to what you want to do and to not market yourself for the job, market who you are um, and the, the right job will become available. Yeah, I, I would also um, kind of say follow what your interests are, right? So if you like to do endoscopy, don't want to do a fourth year of advanced endoscopy, but but like scoping and are, you know, consider yourself good at it, then cultivate some endoscopic niches, you know, become the person who is more comfortable taking out larger polyps um, or, you know, those interested in Barrett's ablation or um, some of those other endoscopic skills. If if you like motility, you like reading motility studies, um, you, you know, then certainly focus your time on um, on you know marketing yourself as your your group's motility expert. Um, it's a it's a time when if you determine early enough in your three years that you want to focus on something, most programs will help you curate your experience to help support you in that in that. Um, in that venture. And you might want to environmentally scan and, and see where there's some real deficits, uh, especially if you have a certain community that you're interested in. For example, in, in our community, there's one person that does pelvic floor. And I, I mean, I'm from a small southeastern city, but there are a lot of people with pelvic floor dysfunction. Can I ask a question of the uh, of Colleen and the panelists? Is that okay? Go ahead. Oh, I just I was curious, Colleen, for and and everyone else for um, negotiation, uh, because I have an idea in my head what I tell people, and it's probably wrong. And I'm just curious what you think. So nowadays, when you're interviewing for jobs, you know, it's never just one and done. I mean, I mean, it could be one and and then you could be done with each other. But the majority of times, it's an interview and then a follow up conversation or interview, and so it's actually multiple interviews. Um, and when you start the negotiating process, you know, do you start it right from the get-go or do you save that, and to your point, Colleen, with the right people, but for like the second round? So, I mean, I was always kind of taught that the first interview is you're both getting to know each other and is it the right fit and is it going to be the right culture and the right job? And then if it is and you both like kind of like courting each other and then if it is and you go to that second round that's when you start bringing um particular negotiations to the table but is that is that right is that wrong what do you guys think i absolutely agree with you uh the and what you may be asking brooke is when do you bring up the vulgar subject of money uh i completely All time money you know extra yeah I think the uh, the first interview is exactly as you suggested. This is um, this is the Gestalt interview. Uh, this is um, is this the kind of person and kind of practice I might want to fit with for the rest of my life. Ashley or Jennifer, you may have a different perspective from uh, academia, but that's the point where you're checking the reputation of the group in the city and you know calling your Aunt Susan that may be an anesthesiologist there to find out what their reputation is. 
and um, I saved the details for the second visit. And it doesn't matter which side I would be on on that Zoom call, but being usually on the, the hiring side, we save that for the second discussion. There's no reason to go down that road um, if, if you know that it, it's not gonna be somebody you, you wanna stay with for the rest of your career. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, um, I only really have experience or insight into negotiating in the world of academia. And um, I came across um, some negotiation tips recently and it was really like you know don't get hung up on a certain amount of money or negotiating for time off that you will never use or or certain things negotiate for things that will put you in a position to achieve your goals for the next five years right so and i think that sometimes when you're fresh out of fellowship it's hard to even like really determine what you want to do in five years like you know but as you you know as you start working and you sort of see like well wh where would i like to be and what would i like to be doing um, I think that, that that was like, wow, that's great. Because when you set yourself up for somebody who's gonna advocate you, for you for something or put you in a position where you're gonna be exposed to X, Y, and Z or allow you to do outreach somewhere where you're trying to cultivate a practice, like all those types of things, if you can negotiate for, for those stepping stones or building blocks, I thought that that, would, that, that was kind of good advice. Um, and Colleen, you might be able to speak to that. Um, the other thing is that there's an information imbalance in a lot of these um, interactions and negotiations, and it really takes effort um, to help um, find out as much about the group or the practice or the institution as possible to figure out what is available to you. What do they need? You know, do they need, you're interested in, you know, being a, a quality officer, you know, that's your thing. Um, well, do they need that? What is their system in place? Who's currently in it? What are the dynamics? Um, is somebody leaving? You know, things like that, you know, and, and so that's an, um, an information imbalance that is sometimes hard to balance out, but you may be able to ask the right questions or sit down with the right people. Um, when you're having these interviews, it's important to have meetings with some of the other um, groups, some of the other disciplines, that are working closely with GI and who you're gonna be interacting with because they can often give you, give you a lot of insight beyond what you're being told within your group. That's really helpful, thank you. And I wanted to follow up on sort of, as Dr. Schmidt said, the, the vulgar subject of money um, because as we know, it's, it's one of the um, giant disparities that persists in GI that female gastroenterologists are paid less when you control for a variety of factors. Um, and in my very short medical career thus far, I've already seen two instances where um, women applying to a job realized that they were being offered less than a man at the same at the same level. Um, so two residents from my residency applied for hospitalist positions for the year after their residency, um, and um, the male resident was offered. Um, several thousand dollars more per year. Um, and um, they only knew because they were dating um, and sort of compared their packages. Um, and both very qualified residents with no other differences, fresh out of training. Um, and so I'm wondering, sort of one of the suggestions that's often given is to ask, you know, to be increased transparency and ask, you know, what, you know, ask male colleagues what they're making there, ask, you know, male junior faculty what, you know, what 
their salaries are. But like putting that advice into practice feels incredibly uncomfortable to me. And so I'm wondering, is that something that anyone has done? How would you put that into, how would you sort of practice that? Or if you think that's a terrible idea, what are other strategies to sort of minimize that, that pay disparity? Uh, you know, um, there's not a lot of transparency anywhere that I know of. I know that where my husband works, you are forbidden to tell people what you make. I, is my understanding. I had a friend and her husband who both got, were interviewing for jobs and practice in internal medicine. And I mean, they even said to her, well, you know, we don't need to pay as much because we know how much your husband makes. I mean, so I, I don't, you know, I don't know, maybe Colleen's the most business savvy of all of us here for sure, because the other three of us, we're just, you know, I don't know, we're sheep. <laughs> at an academic center, but, um, uh, you know, it, you try not to get hung, on, hung up on it because, you know, you do make a fair amount of money and you'll be comfortable, but it is kind of galling if you find out that, you know, people who are doing the same amount of work are making more money. So it is hard. I don't know, you know, you have your moments, but I don't know, Colleen, I, I would, I don't know, unless Jen, I, I think there's not a lot of transparency, at least in academia, I would say. In fact, I got called by one of the um, women who's at another hospital in the Midwest and trying to get salary information because she was frustrated and she was asking me all these questions. I'm like, I, I don't really know what other people make on this. I mean, so. academia is so hard because it's not just salary based on um, like RVUs and productivity. It's salary based on uh, if you're a professor or associate or assistant, it's how much teaching time do you have? How much research grants do you have? It's it's so complicated that there's always a way that someone can explain why you're making less money than someone else, is in my experience. <laughs> I think some of the academic centers actually are really making efforts to Im improve transparency. Um, I'm sure there's some of the ones that that we've researched to prepare talks like this. So uh, I, I don't have any um, skin in that game in terms of promoting one over another. But I do think that there are some good sites you can go to to understand what general questions um, you need to ask. And I can't emphasize this enough, especially for, for young women going into academics. You, you cannot possibly make enough phone calls and ask enough questions because of these these very uh, important insights that that Brooks just described. There are so many moving parts in that kind of job. It's very difficult to understand what benchmark you're trying to compare yourself with. So I think you have to not only know what you want and understand your worth but be able to ask very um, open-ended general questions to the person that you're interviewing or negotiating with about how they um, created this offer. Ask very specific questions about the points and how they, what their basis of comparison is. But I wouldn't do that from the context of just pure ignorance. I would ask as many mentors and colleagues as you possibly can, and it's possible that you would need to divide that into those different buckets. What is this 
what is this? I imagine when you go into a, an academic um, uh, position, you may have some seed money, some seed grants, but it's very unlikely coming out of fellowship that um, you're going to have that, you know, great big ball in the sky of being independently funded. That's one of the things that you're working toward. So you have to break down those first several pieces um, and talk to different people at different institutions. If you're interviewing at one of those um, where they are transparent, you can go to their website and find out how they they measure that. In private practice, there are two things you need. One is your pro forma. They need to be able to present you with a pro forma. This is after the, this is after the second interview. This is getting to the third one. This is when you are actually starting down that path of negotiation. And they need to be able to provide you with data to support each of the elements in your pro forma. So what are the inputs? Now, some of that overlaps with an academic position. If they're expecting you to develop, to generate a certain number of RVUs, what does that look like in real life? Does that mean you're doing 10 colonoscopies five days a week or two ERCPs a week? What does that mean? What happens uh, when the revenue per RVU gets dialed down, which can happen with big important procedures that are very time consuming. How do they offset that for their faculty? Um, in private practice, the other thing you need is a contract. Uh, you may be told this is a contract for our group. It's a take it or leave it contract. This is the same contract for everyone. Everything is negotiable and contracts can be amended. All right, then have that reviewed. Uh, with an attorney. And I'll just leave it with those two things. If anybody has any specific questions, glad to talk with you. Can I just Let's, make a go, Sorry, go ahead, Amitabh. I was just going to say one final question, but go ahead and make your comment and let's get one final question and then thank Well, well just um, in, in academics, it's important to um, discuss what your FTE will be, right? So um, of the 10 half-day sessions, how many of those sessions are you expected to be doing clinical duties? Because that's what your RVUs are going to be based on, as well as potential bonuses based on that clinical FTE. Um, and so if you're a full-time employee, but you see um, patients in the clinic and do endoscopies in eight of those 10 sessions, then you're a 0.88. And you can negotiate for time. So, you know, when one of Colleen's um, key points about negotiation was time, right? Negotiating for time. And that's what we do in academics. You negotiate your clinical FTE down based on other duties you have. If you have research funding, you can buy some time that way. If you have other administrative duties, you can buy time that way. Um, my first job, I was a 0.99 FTE, unbeknownst to me for many years, um, and got lots of flack about my my RVUs up against that, that um, that 0.99, despite me being scheduled for six or seven sessions a week, so it was impossible to reach. Let's get one final question from the fellows and then then wrap it up. Um, first of all, thank you all so much for your insight and your advice and your wisdom. Um, you know, just looking at the um, attendees um, tonight, I'm really thrilled to see that there are 
some um, male fellows who have tuned in as well. Um, but I would say that the overwhelming majority of this group audience and panelists has been women. Um, and so I actually wondered if we could hear from each one of the panelists um, what we can do as women in gastroenterology to continue to encourage allyship from our male colleagues. Um, Dr. Fo, maybe we could start with you. Well, I think, you know, I think we've sort of discussed some of these things about being respectful, you know, to everyone around you and sort of leading by example. And, um, and I think, you know, it's also helpful. I mean, the men can, you know, if you have leaders in your group who, um, are not doing their job and, and maybe those are the people to go to, right? Because people behave based on sort of a top-down phenomenon. And I think, you know, we really see that where if the people above you don't behave in the right way, it's very hard. I mean, sort of everybody else sort of falls, falls in line that way. So I think, you know, I think it's important if, you know, like Mike was saying, if something happens, just you probably got to nip it in the bud right there. And I think it's interesting that she was saying as she made this video, how it made people realize, you know, little things that, you know, and we've already had many discussions about how, you know, it's very different being a woman and men don't get it. And so I think, I think pulling people aside probably when it happens and not making a big deal of it, but sort of making them understand. Cause I think I can, you know, you can see the, they're little things and, you know, one little thing once in a while, you know, you may be able to sort of tolerate that. But over time, it does get tiring and you're going to be doing this for a long time. And it really, it just, it does start wearing away a little bit. So I think making people realize that because I think people don't, obviously, we've, we've already all discussed that the men around us don't really get it. So maybe we should all get a copy of Brooke's video and show it because it's really pointless. <laughs> brings out all those points. It's going viral on YouTube. <laughs> I think recognizing our allies um, and um, acknowledging them and, you know, appreciating them, like, hey, thanks for sticking up for me, or hey, thanks for, thanks for redirecting that person for me, or hey, thanks for nominating me for this, or, you know, all those things. And I think, you know, as a woman in medicine, I try to be an ally for my co-women in medicine. Um, you know, and, and I think just kind of being aware of that, um, like Amitav is a hashtag he for she, and we appreciate that. And there's lots of them out there. Um, and so, you know, I think trying to cultivate that sort of culture, um, is, is one of the things that we can do. Well, thanks. Thanks to the moderators, the fellows, and especially the panel. Um, this is terrific. Thank you all for um, joining us for this uh, fellows hangout. The next one is March 5th, I believe, although we passed the pass slide and it's part two, there we go, of um, Luminal EUF. We had a part one and then we didn't get very far into all of our videos. So um, this will be a little more traditional of an endo hangout with more videos. And so we hope you can join us for that one. Thank you. Go ahead, Ellie, sorry. Nope, that's okay. In closing, thank you to our panelists, Dr. Schmidt, Dr. Foe, Dr. Marenke, Dr. Glessing, and Dr. Chuck, and our GI fellow moderators, Dr. Feld and Dr. Rabinowitz, for this excellent presentation.
and thank you all for your participation tonight. We hope this information has been useful to you and your practice. This concludes our presentation.